today, though, we've been working our way through Acts, and we have found our way all the way to Acts 21. There's only 28 verses, which means we're getting really close. Uh, I haven't looked at it real close lately. I think we have five or six weeks left. Uh, and then in the summer, we'll be doing summer psalms. But uh, today, though, we've got two portions of Scripture that we're going to dig into. Uh, and the first one is, is really looking at Paul's travel to Jerusalem. So it's a bit of a travel uh, aspect. And then the second one is what happens in Jerusalem when Paul arrives there. Uh, and in both instances, we're going to see something interesting. We're going to see the way that, that Paul responds to um, differently to these very difficult decisions that he's got to make. Two very difficult decisions in the way he responds to us. And, and as we look at this, I think it's very helpful for us because it also helps us to consider uh, a lot of similar questions for our own lives, not in the exact same sense, but similar in that they're very difficult, such as um, how do we determine uh, which way to go when there seems to be many um, valid options or opinions and very strong opinions from others who we might trust? Uh, or when should we take advice from the majority of people in our lives? And, and, and when do we go against their advice? Because we're going to see Paul do just that in this text today. Um, so, you know, remember last week I told you about the amazing mission trip that maybe you could go on? Uh, if you remember all the details of it, where basically it's going to be really dangerous and you're going to spend a lot of time in sketchy prisons. Uh, but you get to tell people about Jesus and that part. But, I mean, how would you really make that decision? How would you really decide should you go on that trip or not? And uh, we're going to address some of that stuff in the text here today. So, you've got your Bible, Acts 21. Open up, get there, and we're going to start uh, verse 1, and we're going to look at the first 16 verses to start with. Uh, so follow along. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there, there the ship was unloading its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go and go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then, when we were on board the ship, <clears throat> and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at <clears throat> Telemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, Ju Judah, Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. And said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days we got <clears throat> after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh, Manasseh uh, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. The grass withers and the flower fades. 
Let's pray. God, you tell us that we lack because we do not ask. Well, this morning we are asking that you would grant that we may hear your word. Really hear your word. Uh, would you give us light where we have no darkest, dark, where we have only darkness? And would you give us hope where we have currently none? Lord, would you wring out of our lives all apathy so that our faith is real and strong no matter what else we might face in our days? And so that unclear paths do not lead us astray in our hearts. God, give us focus this morning to receive your word. Amen. And so Paul, if you remember last week, has just left Ephesus and he leaves with tears as he boards a boat and leaves the, the, the elders of that, that church there. And he's now traveling from, from port to port, staying close to the, 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 uh, the shore because he's on this coasting ship. It wasn't designed for deep water. And so uh, the way it works is it stays along the coast and it goes from port to port. So it's, it's almost like a, a bus route around, around the area. And he's heading to Jerusalem, and he makes um, a few stops along the way. And we see those in here. And, so, and, and as they're going, you know, keep in mind that this traveling party is bigger than, than just Paul. Sometimes, because the focus seems to be on him, we just think it's Paul by himself. But uh, even in the writing, we can see that Luke's still with him. We can see that uh, the names that are mentioned, there's a group traveling with him. Um, and so, <clears throat> as they travel, they find this group of Christians in Tyre. And, and they take them in, and they show this great hospitality there. Uh, and, and they just get this week of encouragement with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, but this is also the first time that, that Paul's encouraged, do not go to Jerusalem. Don't go. Um, you see, through the Holy Spirit, they, they have some idea that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, something bad will happen to him. And, and they, they hear that. And so they conclude that Paul should not make this trip. Uh, and Paul does not take their advice. He does continue on to Jerusalem. And, and so they sail these last 70 miles down the coast, and they're going to Caesarea, and there they find Philip the Evangelist. And, and we've journeyed with him before. You might remember, hopefully you remember, back all the way in chapter 6, uh, he's one of the seven who was chosen to serve to the, the, the Hellenist widows. And, and Philip was also the one who met with the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember that? <clears throat> that was in Acts 8. And then after that event in Acts 8, we, we, we read in Acts 8.40 uh, that as Philip traveled, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Well, Caesarea is where we find him now. Uh, we find him there 22 years later, got a wife, has children. Uh, <clears throat> and what we learn about these children sounds a little strange to us, doesn't it? He's got four daughters who are singled, and it was important that they put that in Scripture. For what reason, I'm not sure. Uh, but they prophesied. And we hear that word prophesied. Prophesying in general means to speak the word of God. In fact, the Puritans um, had a book that they would use called The Art of Prophecy, and it just meant the art of preaching. Uh, but in the context here that we're seeing this word prophesy, what we're saying is that God has revealed something about Paul's future to his daughters. Um, and, and really we see it more specifically in this prophet named Agabus who shows up, Right? Um, and Agabus we've seen before too. Some 15 years earlier in Acts 11, uh, this same Agabus prophesied about uh, a famine that was going to happen, and he was absolutely right. It did happen. Uh, and this time, Agabus does this weird living art installation thing. And, and so he takes Paul's belt. It would have been like rope uh, from around him. You can imagine this conversation. You know, let me see your belt. Okay, here's my belt. 
<clears throat> and he wraps it around his hands and his feet. It's this picture of almost being hogtied of some sort. And, and, and while I presume that Paul just looked on, maybe asking the guy next to him, does he do this often? This is really weird. Uh, and, and Agabus then quotes the Holy Spirit here. He's saying that, um, saying that this is the foretelling of how Paul will be arrested if he goes to Jerusalem. And so it's this picture. This is how you're going to end up, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem. And so, of course, the Christians there in Caesarea, um, including Luke, who's writing this, tell him not to go. Now, keep in mind, at no point is Paul denying what this information is. He's not saying, no, I won't. I'll be fine. He's not saying that. He's, he's saying um, it doesn't deter him. It doesn't matter to him. And, and it appears that, that to everyone that, that the what Paul has heard, if this is going to happen, that he should not take the trip. And so their motives are pure, trying to stop Paul, you know. Perhaps this fear of losing Paul as, as a leader in the church, you know. We, you know, we were so used to just looking to you for leadership, we can't lose you. Or, or maybe it's just because they've grown to love him so much and they fear for his own life. And, and as, as usual, we see Paul is just not afraid of what could happen to him. Unmoved by this. You see that in verse 13? He says, what are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And that statement makes everyone uneasy. But, but Paul's very serious here. You know, he's, when, he, when he says he's willing to be imprisoned or to die for the name of Jesus, he's absolutely serious about this. And so, so once they realize that they will not persuade Paul, their response is to say some of the most difficult words for us to ever say with genuine truthfulness. This is difficult. They say, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. See, our, our Savior Jesus uttered these exact same words or the exact same phrase. Uh, Matthew 26, 39, you remember he's in the garden. It's before his crucifixion, and he knows what has to happen. And, and, and there's this sense that, that he's not sure about it. Um, he's sure, but he doesn't want to go through it. And, and we read there, it says he fell. Talking about Jesus, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And the reason that those words are so hard for us is because maybe God's will isn't in agreement with, with our will. We know our will very well. Um, you know, we, we pray together in, in the service. It's, it's words that we're reading and you're, and you're reading them. And there's always that fear that it's going to become rote because... Um, because you're just reading them. We, say, we like to encourage you. you. know, When we're doing the Lord's Prayer, make sure you're thinking about these words. And, and so do you realize that when we're doing the Lord's Prayer every single week, one of the phrases we use is, Thy will be done. And, and I think we like the old English here because, you know, Thy will be done sounds an awful lot like my will be done. Uh, and that feels a lot better to say out loud, right? But it's not. It's Thy will be done. And, and I can't encourage you and me, us, enough to use this phrase that we see in verse 14, that on our lips and our prayer and our life uh, <clears throat> are these words, Let the will of the Lord be done. They're not easy to say. Some of the most painful words you'll ever say in certain moments. Let the will of the Lord be done. You apply for a job or a school. Let the will of the Lord be done. You know, the, you hear from the doctor, we're going to need to do more testing. Let the will of the Lord be done. 
And so now Paul couldn't be persuaded. And he couldn't be persuaded because he was willing to be killed for his faith. And he knows that the love of Christ is his, whether he lives or dies. It's just like we see in 1 John 4, 18, where he says, there is no fear in love. Uh, you know, my personal natural disposition is, is one of, of carrying this, this weight of anxiety. And I know there's a few of you that, that feel that same kind of natural sense there. And um, I even grind my teeth at night, so much so that my dentist, like, he knows this about me. Uh, you know, I'll go to the dentist and he'll ask me, why are you so stressed? And I'll tell him, you know, because the world's full of evil and, and death and suffering. Why aren't you stressed? And I don't really say that. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't that be a weird conversation? Uh, <laughs> maybe I should, though. Uh, but you see this, <clears throat> the love of God was put into action. When Jesus died on the cross, securing our salvation, um, you know, the salvation for all who trust in him by faith, and, and that love should be freeing to us in the same way when we, when we see this, you know, in the same way that we see it as freeing to Paul here. There is no fear in death or suffering when we find ourselves secure in the, secure in the love of Christ. And, and here's the deal. When, when we are afraid to die, then just about everything in the world is going to stir up anxiety in our lives. And when we are not afraid to die because of the love of Christ, there is nothing in the world that can cause fear in our hearts. And Paul truly understands this. And he and his traveling party, knowing this, continue on to Jerusalem. Um, I think part of me feels sorry for, for Luke because he's trying to talk him out of it. And when Paul goes anyway, he's like, all right, here we go. Uh, you know, but, but that's the way it is sometimes. Uh, so before we read this next section, I, I do want us to take note of something along all these travels that was just beautiful. Well, it's one of those things you just kind of pass over real quick, but uh, did you see that uh, at the hands of Christians, the hospitality they received at every single step along the way, every city they went to, they found Christians who took them in and fed them, encouraged them, and prayed with them, uh, and just encouraged them along that way. You know, hospitality today is going to show itself in different forms than it did back then. Uh, people don't generally come to town in the same way like that, um, but always in every generation this this hospitality should be one of those identifiers for us as christians uh and i and i mean this you know do we, do we have people in our homes even even if your home is small and messy right um i think sometimes we get caught up in what hospitality has to look like i have to clean this and put on a dinner party and you know get the quartet ready uh no just open your house, you know. Uh, don't worry about a fancy meal. Just seek to make others feel welcome in your, health, uh, in your house and offer them conversation and friendship. You know, we, we talk about loving God and loving our neighbor. And what we see in hospitality is both of those things put into actual action. Um, and so let that be a question you discuss today, you know, with your spouse, your roommates. And, and let it be a question like this. How can we better offer hospitality to others in our stage of life? And that last part is to say it doesn't have to look the same for everyone in your stage of life. I'm not trying to guilt you here, but ask the question, what does it look like? Okay, so let's, let's read, let's see what happens starting in verse 17, um, and then we'll continue on. So, when he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of, of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. 
And they have been told about you, and you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their, ch their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may, they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing that they have, they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent the letter with our, with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from, the, from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them, and he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled. And the, offering present, uh, and, and the offering presented for each one of them. So, <clears throat> Paul and his traveling party arrive in Jerusalem, and, and they go and they see the elders, and they also see a man named James, who is Jesus' half-brother. You can think that through. His mother is Mary. His father is not, the, not God. Um, and so his half-brother is there. Paul shared these stories about what God has been doing in the ministry. Remember, all these years have passed, and he comes back, and he's just telling them, here's what God has done. He needed this, and he did this, and this. You know, he kept us safe. He was delivering us from trouble. He, he was bringing many people to faith as they believed the gospel. Uh, it's, it's like 1 Corinthians 10.31. You know, you read there, it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And, and that's why I love what we see in, here in verse 20. What we see is that, we can even glorify God in the way we listen, right? Even in the way we listen. They hear what God has done, and maybe they silently thank God, uh, speaking in prayer, or, or they're just dwelling on how amazing God is, and, and they're listening, and God is glorified. I think sometimes we think God being glorified is always related to something else, right? Um, even internally, this is the case. And, and this is why, you know, in the service, we from time to time have this, what we call a gospel testimony. Come, someone comes up here in our worship service, and, and they share, and we get to, to hear what's happening in their life. Uh, and it's so encouraging, I think, to, to, to hear how God has provided or comforted or simply sustained someone uh, that we know and we love. And, and so when we hear these reports, it would be right to say that uh, we are glorifying God in our listening, the way we listen to those. And so after that, Paul receives news that his name is mud among the Jews in Jerusalem. And the, the fear is that, um, and the fear is what are the Jews going to do when they find out that Paul is here in town? Um, so let me try to explain this portion. It gets really confusing on some level. This is it. <clears throat> the accusation is that Paul is encouraging not just the Gentiles, but also the Jews to forsake the Jewish customs in order to become Christians. And the church in Jerusalem um, affirms this, right? They're really careful to affirm what was decided at the Jerusalem Council, that whole list of, of things we are asking them to abstain from. Uh, and, and so um, that list is really driven as a way to say, "You listen, we're not asking Gentiles, remember that's non-Jewish people, we're not asking them to do these things to be saved. We're not asking them to become a Jew and then believe the gospel. And, and, and meaning this, Gentiles don't come to Jesus through the Jewish customs. They come directly to Jesus by grace through faith like everyone else. Uh, and so then they're not asking Paul to reverse that at all. Uh, what they're saying is we understand it would be wrong to ask the Gentiles to become Jews and follow the Jewish rules. But is it okay 
to still do some Jewish practices even after coming to Jesus by faith alone. Not as a means to become Christians, but simply because they are customs in their culture. It's part of what they've been doing. And, and the answer here that Paul gives is, is essentially yes. Uh, they can do that, but it's not required. It's like uh, if you've converted from Catholicism, you could still make the sign of the cross. Sure, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but uh, you need to understand that it's not necessary for you to do that. On the flip side, some of us need to realize it's, it's not bad if you see someone do that. Uh, or say you've you know, converted from Mormonism, where, where drinking alcohol is absolutely forbidden. You, um, you could continue to abstain from alcohol as a Christian, absolutely, yes, but it's not because you're absolutely required to from Scripture. And so they're asking Paul, for the sake of, of our ministering in this city, could you restrain, restrain some of the freedom that you have in Christ that allows you to abstain uh, from the customs and today instead actually go and perform some of them? And I read that and I think there's no way Paul agrees to that. No way. But he does. Without question. He follows their advice. But because he doesn't want to cause this unnecessary offense. Um... For instance, when we have people over to our house, sometimes we might offer a glass of wine. Um, but if I know someone's coming over and I already know they object to alcohol outrightly, not only would, would I not offer them a glass of wine, I wouldn't have a glass of wine myself. Uh, I certainly have the freedom to do so. Um, but there is a, an abstention here so as to not offer any unnecessary offense. And so to, to show that Paul is okay with, with the Jews still doing these Jewish customs, Paul's going to go and pay for these guys to get this, this haircut, right? Um, it's more than that. I hope you realize that. Uh, they've made something like a Nazarite vow. Uh, and, and that's where you don't cut your hair for a long time. And after this, this time is over, uh, once the vow is complete, they shave their head and they pay this fee. And then there's a period of kind of ritual cleansing. Uh, and this is all up in the temple. And so since Paul's just come from Gentile lands, he also is going to need this ritual cleansing uh, according to the tradition. And so the plan is that Paul's going to let the Jews see him doing this, right? They're going to watch Paul doing this. He's participating. And, and thus this is going to prove that Paul's not teaching against the customs as he has been accused of doing. Important point to understand here. At no point is Paul compromising the gospel. You understand that? He, he's not compromising the gospel. He's positioning himself and the local church in such a way that better facilitates their sharing the gospel. And he actually explains this mentality in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 20, where Paul writes this. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. That's what's happening here. He's willing to put himself under some external expectation to reach these people. And you know, he, he could have been prideful in his gospel freedom in this moment. He could have just refused to do it. I don't have to do that. No way. Um, we know he's not doing it because he's afraid of what they'll do to him. Um, he could sit there, you know. He could be eating a ham sandwich and just be freedom in Christ, bros. Uh, you know, he could have done that. But that would have created a relational nightmare for the local church as they tried to reach these people with the gospel. Um, but that's good news. And, and so now there is a, a, a time, you know, for us to remember this, there is a time for us to refuse to absolutely bend in some situations. 
And had this situation struck at the vitals of the gospel, you better believe that Paul would not have budged a single inch on it. Uh, he just wouldn't. Okay, so what's interesting in our two passages this morning, we'll kind of bring this together and think it through, is that Paul, in the first instance, goes against the majority view, right? Everyone's telling him to do something, and he goes against them. They all want him not to go to Jerusalem. Don't go there. It's going to be bad for you. It's going to be bad for us. And then in the other instance, Paul goes along with the majority view. They all telling him what to do, and sure, okay. Um, they all want him to do this Jewish cleansing. And he just says, absolutely. Uh, in one situation, he stubbornly refuses, and in the other one, he's perfectly agreeable. So how is Paul making these decisions? Um, you know, is he flipping a coin? And, and I ask this because we, we face these grayish questions almost every day in our lives. Particularly some of these big ones come at different points in our lives. You, you know, what should I pursue a degree in? Uh, should I take that mission trip or, or get a job this summer? Should I, should I date this boy or date this girl? Should I, you know, when should we start a family? How should we handle the education of our, our children? You know, should we continue in the army or should we get out at the next opportunity? These are tough decisions that come up in our lives. And, and let me be the first to say the, the easy way is not always the right way. Okay? It's a fair statement to say God has opened a door to an opportunity but every single open door is not a door we're supposed to walk through. You remember, or I remember some years ago, um, we took our children trick-or-treating. Um, yes, we take our children trick-or-treating. and pass judgment later. Just listen. Uh, and it was Sadie Piper's first time to do so. And, and she's dressed just adorably as this, this Minnie Mouse. Uh, and we're out walking in the neighborhood. And, and we tried to explain this amazing event to her. You know, you knock on the door and then you say something. The people give you candy. Uh, I don't know if she understood the whole concept, but she understood she got free candy. And, and so we get to this very first house, and it's early, walk up to the door, knock on the door, Beckham's with her, we're far back, further back than parents should be, uh, and the door open, and, and, and we must have been the very first visitors, because the lady answered it, she's real nice, hey, welcome here, and she leaves the door open, and she says, you know what, let me go get the candy, and she turns to walk away, and Sadie Piper just follows right after her into her house, starting to disappear. And, and Laura and I are way out there just shouting, whoa, no, 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 don't go in people's houses. Um, you see, there are a lot of bad ideas that present themselves as open doors, and we shouldn't always just walk through them because they're there. Uh, for instance, God opens a door to a new job promotion. Well, that's great. It pays more. It sounds exciting. Wonderful. Right? There's the open door. We should take it. But, but what you can't discern, uh, but you can't discern that this is the best option for you based simply upon that door being open. Uh, you know, what if it will add stresses to your family life uh, or tempt you to daily compromise on your, on your values? You know, open doors are not clear-cut decisions. and We've got to stop this theology that's just open door, walk through it. Um, I should also mention the opposite's true, you know. Just like the open door is not always the way to go, it's not the hardest way either. You know, the most dangerous, risky option when we're younger, we tend to think this way, um, you know, is always the right choice. Uh, I'm going to Guatemala, and i got $8 in my pockets, and I'm just trusting God to provide. Wonderful, but why? Why, why do that? You know, it, it, the hardest way is not always the best way. Uh, and so, um, you know, much of our lives is making these decisions. And so, um, I imagine at this point you're saying, I want answers. So how do we make these decisions, right? 
the disappointing thing is, is me too. I want these answers too. And, and you're not going to like the answer. I've got an answer for you, but you're not going to like it. I know that already. And it arises from this text and it arises from a many other texts in Scripture. And, and it's this. Um, it's an annoying answer, but it's this. What we really need is this development of discernment. Right? Um, discernment. It, it comes from this Latin term that sounds almost the exact same with some Latin-y stuff to it. Uh, and it just means to separate by sifting. So you shake it out, right? Two decisions, maybe more, and we sift to determine which one we should make. And, and the only way to come to a conclusion when there is more than one godly option is to develop discernment. And, and that's why um, this is important, you know. It's important that we understand that even as we're working through this, you use a word like discernment. It doesn't mean like just decide anything, uh, but you're working from a place of genuine wisdom with a priority for the gospel. Uh, let me repeat that. You work from a place of genuine wisdom with a priority for the gospel. See, Paul does go to Jerusalem despite the pleas of everyone because he's been able to discern that his being there serves the gospel even if it is a threat to his life. And then later, Paul knows that he has freedom to refuse to do what this, the church in Jerusalem has asked him to do. He's certainly free in Christ to refuse it, but he goes ahead and he does it because he's discerning with wisdom, with a priority for the gospel, uh, that, this, uh, <clears throat> that leads him to participate in this Jewish custom. And so now, discernment is, is something that, that God gives, right? But it's also something that we, we nourish and we develop as we, we walk with the Lord. It's, it's like the psalmist prays to God and, uh, you know, asking in Psalm 119, 66, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. See, godly discernment must, must be built upon the truth of the Scripture, and it values the advice of godly men and women. And so, yes, seek advice from others, wisdom that adheres to everything we know from Scripture. That's good. And, and I mention that because... Now, because we can't claim to be working from wisdom if our decision is clearly contrary to the Word of God. You know, discernment doesn't just open it up to whatever you want to do. Uh, which is why you can't say, you, you know, um, my girlfriend and I have decided to live together because we read a Cosmo article and said it would be a great way to see if we're compatible. No. You know that's not godly wisdom. Um, we can't work that way. And so by keeping the priority of the gospel in focus, we're asking questions like, how does this reflect on God? And we're asking questions like, how does this put me in a place to minister to others in the name of the Lord? Or, or how does this lead me? You know, this is one of those questions a little off the side. How does this lead me to live peaceably with everyone as far as it depends upon me? You know, many other similar questions. You know, discernment is knowing right from wrong, but it's also this difference between what is good and what is better. You know, that's what we saw in Philippians. You remember we, we went to that book? Some of you remember that. Philippians 1, 9 and 10, Paul writes, And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And so wisdom and gospel priority. Are you, are you considering, you know, what to major in or what to do after graduation? Wisdom and gospel priority. Are you trying to figure out how many children you should seek to have? Wisdom and gospel priority. You know, how do you respond to someone you work with that is just difficult? Wisdom and gospel priority. How much time and commitment should we allow our, our children to give to extracurricular activities? Wisdom and gospel priority. 
Whatever it is. I mean, that's, that's it. We're looking for discernment. And that means also prayer. Lots of prayer. And, and so I know, I know this answer is not satisfying. I know that. Um, not as satisfying as an answer as you might have hoped for. But, but understand this. God hasn't given us a magic eight ball. He just hasn't. What he has given us is his word. He's given us prayer. He's given us the Holy Spirit that dwells in us if our faith is in Christ. He's, he's given us covenant community to interact with. And he's, and he's given us minds where we can actually reason and, and think and learn. And so our lives are this, this canvas whereby we are practicing the art of discernment in the hope that God will be glorified in our lives. And we, we see that discernment is going to lead you a couple different ways. Um, and I know we want answers that are real simple, right? Just tell me what to do. Unless it's not what I want to do. Then tell me something else. Um, but this is it. You know, discernment is something we must be developing, seeking from God, looking to his word for. Uh, and, and that's going to be my prayer for us as a church, as a people. Not just here and the decisions we make regarding the church, but everything in our lives. Uh, that we can be discerning in a way that brings glory to our Father um, and the strength of Christ. Let's pray. God, give us freedom and courage to be bold in the face of difficult situations. And yet, give us wisdom to not be obnoxious and unnecessary, you know, or at least obnoxious unnecessarily to those uh, who advise us and those who oppose us. Uh, teach us to joyfully continue to follow you even in the scary places, even when the world we live in proves itself to be dangerous. Would you give us discernment always motivated by your glory? And may we say earnestly with Martin Luther uh, in his famous hymn, that goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.